Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 10, Boudicca, part one. This episode will focus upon the year 60 and upon the story of Boudicca, Queen of the Iceni. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jessamine, Phil, and Joseph for joining up already. The year was 1907. A young boy swimming in the River Ald spotted something shiny in the water. What he found was a bronze head that had been clearly hacked from the body of a statue. And so he took it home, painted it white, and placed it in his garden. My American listeners likely have their heads spinning upon hearing this, but occurrences like the bronze head in the garden aren't exactly uncommon. For example, the guy who found Seahenge had earlier found an axe that was thousands of years old, and he just kept it on his mantle for a while. Anyway, so the head was kept in the garden, until it was recognized as an artifact by some local experts, and it was determined to be the head of the Roman Emperor Claudius from the first century AD. And then the head was sold for five shillings. Seriously. From archaeological finds, we can infer that druids would make offerings to bodies of water. For example, pilgrims would travel to Mona, which was modern-day Anglesey or Innismon in Welsh, and throw offerings into the waters that surrounded the island. It's thought that the water, and in particular its reflective qualities, held special religious significance, and there are certainly plenty of instances of valuables from this period being found in bodies of water. And that might account for Claudius's head in the River Ald. If the Druids did make religious offerings to bodies of water, the head of Britannicus, even if it was just an effigy, would make quite a potent votive. And now that you know the druidic roots of the practice, I bet you won't ever look at wishing wells the same way again. There you have kids tossing coins, their valuables, into the waters, and then making a wish. Essentially, making a prayer. The decapitated head is now kept at the British Museum and the sharp and jagged cuts made along the neck still seem to carry the rage of the people who took it from Camelodunum nearly 2,000 years ago. It's clear to anyone who sees it that whoever severed the head of that statue held a deep hatred for the Romans, and one that was felt most keenly by a woman who has become almost legendary in British history. Boudicca. Now, to be clear, I will refer to the main character of our story as Boudicca, but we aren't sure what her name actually was. For centuries, we knew her as Boadicea, but that was due to an early typo where a scribe transposed two letters. But even the proper Boudicca might not have been her real name. Boudicca is essentially a feminized name built upon the Celtic word for victory, Bood. Now, it's possible that her name actually was Boudicca, much like Queen Victoria had her name built upon the word for victory. On the other hand, it might have just been a title. Or maybe it was just a nickname, like Ernesto Guevara became known to most as Che. But for our purposes, 
she will be known from now on as Boudicca. And what was she like? We don't actually know very much about her, and what we do know of her is displayed through the filter of Roman eyes. Eyes that found the concept of a woman warrior to be rather distasteful. The Romans describe her as tall and fierce, traits that the Romans felt belonged only with men, with tawny hair that fell to her hips. We're told that Boudicca was the follower of the Iceni goddess Andraste, which translates to unconquerable. But beyond that, we aren't told much about her. And it's hard to separate the facts from the details that the Romans might have just thrown in to present her as savage or salacious. So unfortunately, she's a little bit of an enigma for us. Okay, on with the story. In 60 CE, Prasutagus, the king of the Iceni, which was the most powerful tribe in the south, but also the most submissive, held a treaty with Rome in which he was allowed to rule as a client king. In his will, Prasutagus named his daughters as co-heirs to the kingdom, along with Emperor Nero. Now, why would he name his daughters as co-heirs rather than his wife? Well, perhaps he liked his daughters better. Or maybe he thought that naming his daughters as heirs would best ensure that they inherit the realm upon his death. Or perhaps he suspected that his wife would not be loyal to Rome. Now, the naming of Nero is a lot easier to understand. Presumably, he felt that naming Nero as co-heir would sufficiently flatter the emperor and allow his line to continue to hold power in the region. But he had two things going against him. The first was that his treaty was with Claudius, not Nero. And second, Prasutagus made the biggest error he could have done as far as Rome was concerned, at least regarding succession issues. He died without a son. I don't want to get too bogged down in even more discussions of Roman lifestyle, so let's just cover this issue really quickly. Rome was really misogynistic and despised the idea of women in positions of power. Britannia, on the other hand, was generally much more egalitarian. And the testosterone-filled halls of power in Rome didn't like that one bit. And to make matters worse, Prasutagus held a lot of land and was quite wealthy which meant that under his plan, a woman would now hold a lot of land, and a woman would be really wealthy. Further, Rome under Nero preferred suppressing regions into mere provinces rather than allowing client kingdoms to persist. And to make matters worse, Nero was either ignorant or he willfully ignored the growing mood on the island. See, the thing is, that the Romanized Britons living in the south were becoming increasingly more agitated as they found themselves being economically oppressed by the Roman moneylenders. The process of Romanization, as we discussed last episode, was expensive, and consequently, there was a bit of a gold rush for moneylenders occurring in the south, and usury abuses were occurring frequently. If you think payday loan locations are terrible, and I'm with you on that, by the way, Imagine dealing with not just extortion-level interest rates, but also adding the risk of being tortured or beaten to death by the lender's thugs if you were late on your payments. So you had the wealthy Britons suddenly finding themselves deeply in debt and living in fear. 
Moreover, they were incredibly confused by the concept of a loan. Money culture was relatively new in Britannia, and even though there were coins on the island, things were still done in a barter, gift-giving sort of manner. So when the Romans were asking for their money back, and sometimes they were asking rather hard, it was both confusing and enraging to the Britons, who would never dream of asking for a gift back. But this process of lending and Romanization wasn't accidental. The small Roman colonies weren't a mere byproduct of the invasion. They were an essential part of the goals of Rome. Wealth extraction and cultural domination. And it wasn't just the wealthy Iceni who were getting rowdy. Next door were the Trinovantes, and the Trinovantes held a special hatred for their oppressors. After all, Camelodunum, modern-day Colchester, was their capital. At least it was before it was annexed 11 years ago by Publius Astorius Scapula, and then just handed over to his veterans to serve as the Roman base of operations. The Romans just took their land as if it was theirs. How could there be peace with people who would do such things? That single act was an object lesson to the Trinovantes of how the Romans truly felt about the Britons. For all their talk about obtaining citizenship and behaving as good Romans, despite giving up their religion and going deeply into debt to satisfy the expectations of their overlords, the Britons were still subhuman to the Romans. And there would be no security or safety for the Britons so long as the Romans could simply take what they want and abuse the population without fear of reprisals. Oh yes, there was a hatred for the invaders amongst the Trinovantes, and it was in the shape of Camelodunum. It was a furious wound that they had been nursing for over a decade on a steady diet of rage and resentment. But they also held that wound deep in their chests, where the Romans couldn't see it. And as for the Iceni, they were having their young men being conscripted into Roman military service, had recently been forced to hand over all of their weapons to the Romans, and the Romans had the right to search their possessions for any hidden weaponry. Additionally, they were being taxed to pay for the invasion of their own lands. That would have been bad enough, but there's little evidence that suggests that there was also a famine in 60 CE. And the taxes that the Romans demanded were often paid in grain. So the people had the impossible choice of either going hungry or dealing with Roman retribution. Needless to say, the region was ripe for rebellion. And with the Roman military operating in the West, the time couldn't have been better. All that was needed was a spark. And then Prasutagus died. And he left behind a wife and two daughters, who he named co-heirs with Nero, though his wife was intended to rule in their place until they reached maturity. A funeral was held, and Prasutagus's widow, the woman we have come to know as Boudicca, took the throne. She had the right to rule, after all, since Prasutagus was quite clear in his wishes. The trouble, though, was that the will relied upon the treaty that established the Iceni as a semi-independent client kingdom. And it seems that the treaty died with Prasutagus, at least as far as the Romans were concerned. So word reached the Roman procuratorial office in Britannia, and the ears of Decianus Catus. 
Catus was myopic in a number of ways, especially when it came to the acquisition of territory and money. All he saw here was opportunity for the expansion of Rome's borders and her coffers. So slaves were sent to obtain Prasutagus' property, and centurions were sent to force the country into a provincial status. And not a thought was given to any potential political fallout. Now, as I said earlier, Governor Suetonius and many of his soldiers were in Wales. So control of the remaining soldiers was lax. And they did as they were commanded, and seized the property. But it looks like the culture of brutality that had been growing in Britannia had bloomed. So when the Iceni balked at what was happening, the centurions raped the daughters of Prasutagus, publicly flogged Boudicca, and beat and arrested the Iceni nobles, then looted the rest of the area. Tacitus didn't go into the gory details of this incident carried out in Nero's name. And really, he didn't need to. His audience, the Romans, would have been horrified by the event. And that single line of description was loaded with an enormous subtext of disgust and hatred for the moral degeneracy of the period. Now, Boudicca was a queen of a client kingdom, and therefore, she was almost certainly a Roman citizen. It was considered anathema to strip and flog a Roman citizen, and to allow two princesses, who were both probably virgins and citizens themselves, to be gang-raped? How could this happen? It was inconceivable that any free woman would be flogged in Rome, and under Roman law, any man guilty of rape was executed. We shouldn't forget, of course, that Tacitus was writing from a period following Nero's reign. He was only four years old when this happened, and so perhaps the morals of Rome had changed following Nero. But I find that doubtful. I suspect that the real reason that something like this could happen was because Britons were not Romans. Not even their nobles. Not even if they were granted citizenship. They were Britons, a low form of life, and nothing more. So the Iceni had been thoroughly and brutally educated in the truths already known by the Trinovantes. And the British nobility in the surrounding area, as they heard of the Roman savagery inflicted upon even the staunchest of allies of Rome, must have realized that it could be their daughters next. In mere moments, the entire region came to realize that there could be no peace with people such as this. There could be no justice so long as the Roman military protected such villains. No Briton would be safe so long as there were Roman sandals in Britannia. The response to the Roman outrages was quick and overwhelming. Word spread. Britons from all over the east left their homes and their farms and flocked to Boudicca's side. Village after village came to her, and Boudicca found herself before an immense crowd of her enraged countrymen. And then the Trinovantes started to arrive. This was no longer an internal issue. This wasn't an Iceni fight. This was British. Boudicca was now at the head of an enormous multi-tribal army. But where would she take them? The Iceni would be satisfied with any target, so long as there were Romans to kill. So the smart move was to march on Camulodunum and heal the old Trinovante wound, thereby fully uniting their tribe with her cause. 
Not to mention that it was a major center of Roman power and a gaudy showpiece to Roman life. And so she issued her orders, and they marched. Now, curiously, we don't know if she was the sole leader of the army. She might have just been one of many leaders, which would make sense given the size and multicultural nature of the army. And if that was the case, the Romans probably just focused upon her because she was a woman and because the Romans had a flair for the dramatic, and having her be one of a multitude of leaders wouldn't have been nearly as exciting. But these are all questions without answers, and once again, we're forced to rely on Roman accounts, since there weren't any native written records of these events. But even if she wasn't the sole leader, she was still leading thousands of men and women along the 40 miles of graveled streets towards the hated capital. And as they marched, passing Britons joined them. Some would throw their possessions onto a cart and follow the army with their entire family in tow. The army began to look like a full-blown migration, and they were moving inexorably towards Camelodunum. Now within the Roman city, sympathizers to the Iceni cause who were still within the town probably tried to reassure the residents that everything would be okay, and that she wouldn't strike there, or even if she did, they'd be fine. After all, this was an army of women. <laughs> women? What do they know about fighting? It's not like this was a serious rebellion. Perhaps the sympathizers also convinced the Romans that they would be protected by the Celtic god of war that the town had been named after. Camelos. Whatever method they used, they did such a good job that when Boudicca and her army arrived at the town, it was undefended, despite the fact that Camelodunum had not yet even demolished the fort left behind by the 20th legion. And you'll recall that knocking down abandoned forts within the Roman settlements was a common practice. But anyway, they were totally defenseless. They didn't even construct an emergency rampart. And when they finally realized that Boudicca was marching for them, they didn't have enough time to correct that mistake. And there weren't any legions nearby to come to their aid. All they could do was beg for support from Londinium. And then Londinium sent a scant dispatch of 200 men. 200 men against Boudicca's army that numbered in at least the tens of thousands, and some accounts listed in the hundreds of thousands. Camelodunum at this time covered perhaps 10 square miles, and the farmlands that had been held by the Trinovantes for generations were now inhabited by Roman veterans. The round cottages that were so loved by the Britons had been knocked down and were replaced by a grid, probably around four blocks long and seven blocks wide, of white-painted Roman buildings with red-tiled roofs. There were shops, baths, a theater, and even a temple dedicated to Emperor Claudius. But there were no defenses. Not even the old dikes that were used in the years it was held by the Trinovantes were available. The Romans had simply built right over the top of them. So as Boudicca and her army approached the capital, they would have seen a town radically altered and totally defenseless. But what about the Romans living in Camelodunum, I can almost hear you asking. There must have been at least a few thousand veterans, slaves, family members, traitors, and the like. Couldn't they organize a defense? Well, that was no army. The veterans were all well past their prime. 
the real Roman warriors, the legions, were miles and miles away. And so within the town, the Romans quaked with fear. And that fear was not aided by a number of strange occurrences. First, the Statue of Victory spontaneously tipped over and exposed its back to the approaching army of Boudicca, as if it were fleeing. Additionally, the women within the town were, quote, excited to frenzy, end quote, and started uttering prophecies of the destruction of Camelodunum. In the local Senate building, they could hear ghostly laughter, howling, wailing, and dire curses in a strange tongue. Then some looked into the waters, and they saw a vision of the town overthrown with body parts washing ashore and the waters turning red with blood. So, this can be one of a few things. It can either be Dio and Tacitus spicing up their stories for their audiences while also trying to explain how something like this could happen, which does sound rather likely since there aren't going to be many first-hand accounts of what happened and the Romans might feel better if they could just say, well, that was the fault of the gods. Or maybe there were a few surviving Romans and they were entirely traumatized by the event and so they came back with really strange stories. And that is plausible, but I think it is rather unlikely. Or finally, there could have been just a bunch of supernatural events that were happening. I'll let you decide. Anyway, so the people in the town, regardless of any alleged spooky events, were probably pretty freaked out. And rightly so. It had been 17 years since the Romans came, and this was the first time that many of Boudicca's army would get the chance at a little payback for all that they had suffered. Not to mention that they were eager to stretch their legs, so to speak. To call the Britons warlike would be an understatement, but since the Romans came, most of them were forced to abandon their warrior culture and live like slaves in the so-called Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And that was really just a euphemism for peace through brutality. But the Britons had not forgotten the old ways. And as Boudicca and her people came within view, the Romans who stayed must have immediately realized that they had been lied to. This was not a mob of angered women who would be sent scattered back to their villages. It didn't matter that they were unarmored, or that they merely had farming equipment as weapons the Romans would not be able to hold against what was rushing towards them. This was not an army. This was a rolling flood of rage. Perhaps the superstitious Roman historians were right. Maybe it was an act of God that swept along the hills towards the capital. But it was not any god known to the Romans. It was the goddess Andraste and her devotee, Boudicca. Boudicca and her army prepared for war. She donned a tunic of many colors, which was probably similar to Scottish tartan, and wore a large golden torque around her neck. And this description, provided by Dio, suggests that unlike some of her counterparts, she didn't strip down and paint herself blue prior to battle. But despite the lack of woad, she still inspired fear in the Romans and awe amongst the Britons. The British army held for a moment, surveying the town. What had once been the largest town of Britons was now unrecognizable. Their culture had been thoroughly wiped clean and replaced with the angular and unnatural presence of Roman life. I imagine they were quiet at first, 
possibly stunned at what they witnessed before them. But it wasn't long before the vast army began chanting. It probably began low, with only a few voices joining in. But before long, the multitudes were all chanting, Boudicca, Boudicca, Boudicca. And then there was a war cry, and then another. And soon the entire army was howling for blood as it rushed towards Camelodunum. The rage of the Britons was so overwhelming that Boudicca's army didn't even bother with looting. This wasn't a matter of money. It wasn't a matter of territory. It wasn't even a matter of status. This was a blood debt, and the Britons intended to pay it in full. As the torrent of Britons washed in, they butchered everyone. The 200 soldiers from Londinium, the resident Romans, the Romanized Britons, no one was spared as they burned most of the town to the ground. Those who tried to hide found themselves hemmed in by the same ordered grid that they imposed upon the land. There were no alleyways or twisting roads to hide in. Everything was easily reached and in plain view. And everything was destroyed. Except for the temple at the corner of the town. That was made of stone with thick brass doors. A small number of Romans fled for sanctuary within its walls while their friends and neighbors were cut down. And inside the temple, they could hear the Britons amassing outside, then battering at the door. With mounting horror, they probably turned to their gods and prayed that their defenses would hold. And they did, for now. News of the disaster reached Petilius Serialis, the legate of the Ninth Legion, and he hurried south, to rescue his countrymen. However, he was too late to save them. Moreover, Boudicca had time to mobilize a portion of her army and prepared an ambush for Petilius. And near the village of Great Ratting, they met in battle. And nearly every Roman foot soldier was slaughtered in this engagement. And Petilius was forced to flee on horseback with his cavalry detachment and seek safety in his fortress at modern-day Longthorpe in Peterborough. And there he stayed and just did his best to weather the storm. Meanwhile, back down in the south, for a couple days the Romans within the temple huddled in the dark, surrounded by howling Britons. And now they were without any hope. No one was coming and their prayers must have turned to panicked screams as they heard the Britons climb the walls, and then saw them bashing through the tile roof to gain access to the temple within. There was no escape, and no one was spared. Outside the temple, almost the entire town had been burned to ash. Consider how difficult that must have been. These were houses made of plaster with tile roofs, Camelodunum wasn't burned down by accident, or as a welcome side effect to Boudicca's assault. There had to have been a deliberate effort to burn down each building. This wasn't a coincidence. It was pure spite and hatred. They wanted to eliminate everything that was connected with their oppressors. Now, there is something that bothers me with the Roman account of Boudicca's assault on Camelodunum, and it's the lack of bodies. We read of executions and killing on a massive scale. 
But where are the graves? Where are the remains? Sure, when Camelodunum was eventually rebuilt, it was significantly smaller, so I'm guessing that at least some of the people were killed. But we've gotten pretty good at archaeology in the last century. So you would think we would have found a lot of bodies or a mass grave by now. But we haven't. Now perhaps the bodies were left to exposure, rather than being buried, and therefore bits and pieces could have been carried off by animals before totally breaking down in the elements. And that is quite possible. But Dio offers another possibility. He wrote of how the surviving townsfolk were taken into the groves and killed in sacred rites. On the one hand, the accusation of sacrifice could very well be the exaggerations of the Romans to proclaim their own righteousness. And Dio wasn't present for any of this, so his account should be read with skepticism. But on the other hand, it's not impossible that Boudicca did have the Romans sacrificed. And I'm definitely going to get some angry emails on that last point, so I better explain. Since the discovery of Lindau Man, we no longer just have to take the Romans' word for it that there was human sacrifice in Britannia. We now have an archaeological find that seems to point to at least some level of human sacrifice occurring. So let's walk through this together. You have a group of people who are intensely religious, who have been largely banned from practicing the religion, are frothing with rage, are undertaking an enormous task of ousting the Romans, and they have just destroyed the Roman capital city. I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that they would want to make some sort of significant spiritual offering. So maybe they did. And something like that would account for the lack of mass graves. But regardless of what happened to the bodies, Boudicca had her revenge. The gaudy showpiece of Roman power had been burned to the ground. The veterans who inflicted so much pain upon her people were now dead. The statue of the emperor who brought all this suffering to their shores, Emperor Claudius, was decapitated. The sack of Camelodunum was complete. But Rome was still present on the island. Far to the west, Suetonius was committing sacrilege upon their sacred groves. And to the south, in Londinium, was Decianus Catus the man responsible for the theft of Boudicca's throne and the violation of her daughters. Boudicca's work was just beginning. So the Britons loaded up their carts and marched south, burning any Roman homesteads that were unlucky enough to be caught in their path. And next week, we'll complete the tale of Boudicca's revenge.